So back in the day, it was pretty customary uh, for people to name a book, to give it the title of the book, uh, after the first word or phrase that you found in the book. And in Hebrew, the book of Genesis starts out with the word Bereshit. And usually that means something like beginning or origin. And then, of course, uh, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek in the, what we call the Septuagint. It was actually done by Jewish people. And they used the word Genesis instead to depict this book that we are just beginning. So many people know this is like some of the most famous words in all the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. This is the book of origins in a really a big, big way. There is a word, which in Hebrew is toledot, um, but it's found in a phrase, and that phrase occurs 13 times in the book of Genesis. And every time you find it, it's at a very key place. It summarizes what came before it, and it introduces what is now going to be shown you in the story. The book of Genesis is the book of origins, I said, though, in a big, big way, because it includes the origin of our world, the origin of humanity, the origin, at least from the earthly side, the origin of humanity in, in terms also with a struggle between good and evil, the origin of the cosmic conflict here on earth between good and evil, the origin of marriage, the origin of the Sabbath. I mean, we look through the heavens and we see things that, uh, you know, give us an idea of month by month because of certain things that happen in the astronomical world, but not the seven-day week. The seven-day week, we find indication of it only in the Bible. That's its origin. We read in the book of Genesis of the origin of languages, uh, the origin of nations, and above all, the origin of the gospel all found in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the first two verses contain, I think, a great deal of good news for you and for me. The first verse here in the book of Genesis has seven words in it. How many did I say? Seven words in it. And how long did it take God to create the world? Seven days. Probably a reason for that mirrored text. These seven days have brought a lot of comfort and a lot of courage to people throughout thousands of years, but they've also brought some controversy and some conflict. Now, I'm sure that there are many, many of you who know a whole lot more than I do about science. Science is not my specialty. But if I were looking at this, I'm sure that I would say that once you read the scriptures and you also think about science, you would have plenty of questions that you might ask about the Bible or about science, both. And I would suggest to you that you let God 
give you the very best answers to whatever your questions might be. That seems reasonable to me. So if, for example, we were to use, um, well, let's say we chose evolution as the way that God created this world, we would then have to find ourselves very comfortable with the idea that God used violence, the survival of the fittest, uh, subduing and oppressing the weakest as the way not only to promote the gospel, but also to show you how the world should live. And uh, I think that would be very problematic uh, because I don't think that's the kind of picture that God is showing about himself. It seems to me, in fact, the evolutionary picture would be a wonderful model of how the devil would create a world if he had the ability and power to do it. I mean, for example, if, if we accepted the evolutionary model, why then would we hear stuff in the Bible where God says, I want you to lift up the weak when subjugating or destroying the weak is the model that the world lives by at least in evolutionary terms. Satan, I think, would use these methods. God never would. But there are three statements that are made in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. They, they teach us a little bit about science, about metaphysics, about cosmology. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning is a statement of time. God creating the heavens, a statement of space. God creating the earth, an assertion that God has made matter. The triune God created a triune world. Time, space, matter. Now, what this means, just real quick, is that God is the only one who is eternal. Time, space, and matter are created. God and God alone is eternal. Not you, not me, not our world. We are not immortal. We are not eternal. In Hebrew, that first phrase, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that first clause is an interesting kind of thing. Only God... Let's see if I can, I put it in green, but we'll, we'll make sure you can sort of see what I'm talking about. Only God can do this in the Bible. You want to guess what that means? Say it out loud. Creates. Only God can create. Only God. The word bara here is only applied to God in the Old Testament. Never to a human being. Never. Human beings can do other things, which God can do. We can form, you know, like a potter. We can build, you know, like somebody who does construction. We can make certain things within limits. But only God can create. Only God. This word is a symbol of God's unique power to create things. To create things from nothing, but not everything he has created was from nothing, right? You saw in the bulletin, for example, where God created stuff, and then he used the stuff to make something else. 
We borrow and we work with stuff, but we can't originate it. So one of the things that was interesting when I was a locksmith was, you know, I'm sure you've all seen a key duplicating machine. How many of you have seen a key duplicating machine, right? How many of you have ever seen a key originating machine? Raise your hand. Yeah, see my wife's hand over there? Yeah, the locksmith shop that I owned, that we owned for quite some time, had uh, multiple key originating devices. We could take a blank key and turn it into something that worked. Now, we didn't make the blank itself. That was different. But we could turn it into an original key. We had that kind of equipment. In the creation world, God alone can create stuff that's new. The rest of the rest of us, we just have to work with what God has already made. So every time of the 50 or more times that this word brass surfaces in the Old Testament, it is speaking only of God's unique power. God and God alone. And every time it is used, it, it is depicting something that God has made that is extraordinarily good. It's majestic. Now, this Hebrew uh, clause also comes with an identification of who it is that can create. And that would be L. L. Now, what's interesting is here, the part on the right, that's L. The second half of that word, heem, is plural. It means more than one. Not a single person, more than one. God, and I'm sure you've heard this song, El Shaddai, right? El is the name for God here. And it means not just God, but it means the all-powerful one. The all-powerful one is the one who is created. The one who is transcendent and omnipotent. God, when he speaks, time, matter, and space come into existence. Even if they had never been there before, he brings them in. Just by speaking. Genesis 1, 1 is not just, though, about a single solitary person, but about, it hints at a triune group of people we call the Trinity, God the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. We see a hint here of that. As we keep reading, we discover that the earth had become formless and empty and darkness had covered the surface of the deep, or at least that's one translation that a brilliant friend of mine has offered me, and not me, just others as well. My friend is a scholar, a serious scholar. He's working on a doctorate at a Jewish institute in Cincinnati. Uh, and I have little doubt that he knows a whole lot more about Hebrew than I do. Yet, nevertheless, uh, I find his theory only sort of passingly interesting. Uh, let me share with you what he believes. He believes that verse 2 should be translated not was, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness had covered or was covering the surface of the deep. He believes it should be translated had become and had covered. 
So one of the things that he does is he proves that all the way the words that I have placed in green, they all are dark words. They are all words that depict Satan and, and evil, not God and goodness. And he makes a good case for that. They're associated not with God, but with the devil. And then he goes to a verse like this in the book of Revelation. You're familiar with it, right? And war broke out in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. And from there, we continue to read what happened, right? The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And he very, very rightly reminds all of us that the word in Greek does not mean the world, it means the universe. The devil is the deceiver of the entire universe. We are not the only ones at stake in the cosmic conflict between good and evil, but all the universe. The devil has tried to deceive every single created intelligence, period. That is correct. So where was that great dragon, that ancient serpent, thrown down to? Well, he rightly sees a connection between the passage in Revelation to this one in the book of Isaiah. Found in chapter 12, verse 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the morning. The term son of the morning applies in the Old Testament to the angels. How you are cut down to the earth, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly on the heights of the north. Hmm, that's an E there. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Jerry, you remember your Sabbath school class? I mean, you, that guy, the rich young ruler? There was a lot of me language in that story, wasn't there? Is there a little me language here? Yeah, a lot of me language. This guy is self-centered, big time, right? He wants to be the greatest everywhere. And where was he thrown down to? The earth, the earth, the earth. So the question then, of course, is what does that mean? And when did it happen? When was the devil thrown down to the earth? So according to my friend, the devil was thrown down to the earth prior to Adam and Eve being created, prior to the world as you and I know being created, uh, that uh, the conflict that took place between God and the devil ended up here on planet Earth. And in their battle with each other, this Earth, according to my friend, was decimated. And God decided that he was going to start over. Despite the fact that this was Satan's home, he was going to start over. Now, I have a hard time getting on board with all of that for this reason. So I'll state as simply as I can. The difference in power between God and the devil is like unspeakable. Okay? So Ellen White has this uh, little passage, for example, where she speaks, and she does this more than once, does it quite a few times, 
that, that God could have destroyed Satan and all of his sympathizers as easily as we could pick up a rock from the ground and then cast it back down onto the ground. Now, I don't know about you, but I can do that very easily. And I cannot help but believe that if there was an actual physical pitched battle between Michael, Jesus, and the angels and the devil's angels, there would be no more devil or any evil angels. In fact, here's the way the Bible puts it. All God would have to do is stop keeping the devil and his angels alive, and they would be dead. Just like that, right? So I, I have a little bit of a hard time getting on board with what my friend believes and, and teaches, but at least I get an idea of how he would go with it. So what he's saying is, okay, uh, because of this pitch battle, the world needed to be recreated. Now, I think if that indeed happened, and I am very suspect about that, I'm sorry, I don't think that's what happened, but nevertheless, let's say it did happen. I could explain it the way I would understand it. It would go like this. Uh, the devil left heaven uh, because he was decidedly unhappy with God, and uh, the devil and his evil angels devastated this world. And why would they do that? Because sinners are cantankerous people. They don't even get along with each other, right? I mean, the, the only thing the devil and his angels really agree on is their antagonism towards God and God's followers. Everything else they disagree about. They're sinners. You know what it's like to be a sinner. You know that sinners are cantankerous people. They're cranky. They don't get along. So I could imagine that if that were the case, the devil and his angels could literally take a nice, pretty world that God had created and ruin it in no time flat. I could believe that. But in my friend's mind, instead of the word and the Spirit of God was hovering, it would mean in contrast then to all the darkness that uh, the devil had brought to this world through his uh, fight with God, in contrast to that, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, said, I'm going to do something about that decimated world. I'm going to fix it. The Holy Spirit was like a mother bird fluttering over her little ones. Hovering, in this instance, is a word that's applied uh, to a creature, not just a wind blowing. Okay? So the Holy Spirit is a creature, a person. In my friend's mind, the Holy Spirit wanted to fix, see this world fixed. Well, okay. Amidst the formlessness and the emptiness and the darkness and the abyss, God wanted to do something clean. He wanted to make this world perfect and, and beautiful again, to restore it to its grandeur. Even if before the devil arrived, it was unpopulated. Now, I think, okay, perhaps the Holy Spirit just wanted to get going in the creation of this world. When we see this verse about the Holy Spirit hovering, you know, over the surface of the water, I think the Holy Spirit was eager to change the world into what God wanted the world to be. Eager to get the job done. Have you really, you know what it's like to, to, to do something you really like to do? I mean, I've told you one of the reasons why I've been missing sleep this last week was because I was jacked up over the excitement of teaching this class. Do you know what it's like to be excited to do something? Yeah. And I think the Holy Spirit's excited, wanting to get going. Let's do this. 
You know, chomping at the bits, what we call that. Let's go. Let's get this done. Some verses, some translations, I should say, use the word not hovering, but brooding. And what that means, not in a dark sense, is a burning desire to get started. But the same Holy Spirit who was hovering over the formlessness and the emptiness and the darkness and the abyss of our world in its beginning state is also hovering over your life, my life, over your family's life, your friend's life. God wants to bring a new creation, not just into this world as he made it, but also now into our hearts. Ever read this text? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Put a new and right spirit within me. What Hebrew word do you think this passage begins with? Bara. The same word that was used to describe God creating this world. What does that mean to you and to me? It takes just as much energy on God's part to create the world as it does to deal with a sinful human heart. Just as much energy. God is just as capable of doing the one as he is of doing the other. Nothing less than a creative miracle can pull us out of the lack of orderliness, emptiness, darkness, the pit that we've made our lives to be, Nothing short of a miraculous creation can pull that off. That's what we read. Not only did God give us life in the beginning, but he also gives us new life right now. Especially when we, you know, we've made an absolute mess of the life that he's given us. His love can set a new life in our heart in motion. His love alone can fix us when we're damaged. When we've damaged our life as we have. Well, back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was formless, we read, and empty, and darkness covered the surface of the deep. So despite, I think, what my friend believes, it's also possible that the, God made the world like this at the beginning, and then he turned the world into something way, way better. Something it was not at its very inception. Either way, these two words, formless and empty, they set the tone for what's going to happen next. They tell us God's agenda, God's concerns. These two words, formless and empty, come into play immediately. And they do it in this way. God creates light, and he creates sky and water, and he creates the land. The first half of the week deals with the word formless. God gives form to our world. Now, to have form doesn't mean much when it comes to uh, actually being occupied, but it makes it occupiable. In the second half of the week, God creates the sun, moon, and stars, the sky and the water creatures, and the land creatures. And so what God has formed, God now fills. 
And notice it's an equal split. One half of that slide correlates directly to the other half. You see that? Right? So when God does fill the world that he's making, he gives to the creatures also an amazing ability. In Genesis 1.20, we read, And God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. And this command to let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures is, and then, of course, also flying creatures, it actually is the same words that were, they were the same words that God used earlier to say, let the earth bring forth vegetation. Now, that's of God's doing and God's doing alone. But when it comes to the birds and the flying creatures, God has gifted them with the ability to procreate, to actually, in some measure, within their own sphere, to do the very same thing that he is doing. Is that right? Yeah. God is making creatures who can participate in creation. And we know this is true because we read in verse 22 these words, God blessed the uh, water and flying creatures, and he said, multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. God allows these creatures to do what he does, create life. Now, the devil has charged God with being selfish, controlling, power-hungry. That collapses just a little bit when you see just how many times in the Genesis story some creatures, the creatures, maybe I should put it that way, the creatures, are given the ability to do the very things that God is doing within their own sphere. All that they can do as creatures, he gives them permission to do. Now, someone might come to me and say, well, Mike, why didn't he make them God? Well, as part of our basic definition of God, God is un God's life is unborrowed and underived. He didn't get it from someone else. He didn't get any aspect of his life from someone else. How do you create someone and give them that characteristic? Because as soon as you create them, now they have life borrowed and derived. You just can't do it. If you could do it, God would do it. But you can't do it. It's not logical. It's not possible. But he is willing to give each of us every single aspect of his character that he can give to us. So this freedom-given, selfless God makes us think about a few things. Do we give freedom to people like we should? Like maybe we're raising our kids, right? How much freedom do we give them? Do we remember to give them some freedom? Now, we don't want to give them so much freedom they get super hurt real quick. But, you know, the deal is freedom has to be given to people if you want them to thrive. If you want them to be self-directing, right? You have to give them some freedom. Now, in the damaged world that we live in, that also does include um, giving your kids opportunity to potentially get hurt, right? 
So the kid that you teach to ride a bike, do they come in and need a Band-Aid on their knee? Uh, yeah, <laughs> usually uh, more than that. I usually needed a patch on my pants because my, uh, mine would have a big hole in them. And then I would need the Band-Aid underneath that. But uh, this uh, freedom-given God, uh, he wants us to offer uh, freedom to other people. And not just that, uh, he doesn't want us to selfishly hang on to the things that we have, but rather to give them away, as he has done, as he has modeled for us. Well, here we are, looking at creation week again. When God was finished filling what he had formed, then what? Well, then he gave people Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest. Hmm. What can we learn from this? Well, just as God uh, has uh, taken our lives and made it possible for us to be, as it were, purposeful people, ordered people, given us a home, given actually each of the creatures he's made a home, right? A home-like environment. Making their home environment so inviting that, you know, the, the birds wanted to nest in the trees and, you know, the fish love their world in the seas, the land animals everywhere on the land. Um, I cannot help but wonder if that is also what God would like us to do with our life. To make our life just as inviting, just as homey, just as, you know, um, uh, what's the word I want to use? Um, just as purposeful. He wants us to live a life that is so attractive that people want to come and visit us. They want to stay with us. They, they like our company because they like how nice a people we are. We're homey and inviting. God could take our emptiness and he could fill us with so much love that, that literally people would not, I mean, you'd almost have to chase them out so you could get the night, a night's rest. Do you hear what I'm saying? Is that the kind of life now that you live as a Christian? This Sabbath rest, of course, was a special time where people could hang out with God, and I presume the creatures as well, you know, getting an opportunity to, to spend a lot of great quality time with God. I, God doesn't just make creatures and not play with them, right? Isn't that why you have pets, is to, to play with them, to enjoy their company? And so you can see a lot of quality times, you know, built in, a whole day of the week, quality time to spend with God, to spend with your family, to spend with your friends, and each of your lives being shaped more and more to be inviting and attractive, to be kind, to be freedom-giving. What do you think would have happened if God had done things differently? What if he'd made all of the stuff that's listed on the right side, the numbers four, five, and six, what if he'd made all of that and placed it into the water that simply had darkness over it, which we read in the beginning of Genesis? What then? 
How many of you have ever wondered why it is that when you look up, the sky is like, it, you can't stop looking, I mean, in the sense that nothing impedes the progress of your sight. Have you ever wondered what our world would be like if, if God had put a drop ceiling on our planet? Would any sense of grandeur and bigness and, you know, expansion and growth really be in your heart? Any desire to be more, bigger, and better? If we want to enjoy the company of other people, it's possible that we might need a little order, we might need a little purpose, we might need a little timeliness, we might need some homey-like graces, right? And these are things that God alone can give. But since he's already shown himself capable, why not trust him again for it now? And have your life made into literally a Garden of Eden that other people could come and enjoy. Enjoy your company. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for giving us an opportunity to just begin a study of the book of Genesis think a little bit of a couple of its verses, and ask ourselves some questions. God, would you work in our hearts? Would you create in us a clean heart and a right spirit? Would you give us order and timeliness and purpose and winsomeness as we learn more about you by 